Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that we have an extended uh, time with Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Clarence Schuler of the Monday Afternoon Mix. Pastor David Miles is here with me as well, and we are absolutely loving our time with these two fine gentlemen who have written a book together called Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. And right before we went to break, and now we've started a whole uh, new uh, half hour, gentlemen, we were talking about things that you learned from your dads or other wise men. And you hit it out of the ballpark, Gary. And Clarence, I bet you got a couple to add. Well, my dad said this. He said, no matter how rich a poor man is, keeping his word tells you what kind of man he is. And uh, that just really spoke to me. Uh, Some other things we wrote were uh, love people even when they fail you. Uh, Put God first and seek to follow the teachings of Jesus. Don't feel sorry for yourself. That's one thing my dad really drove into me. Uh, never forget that you're responsible for your decisions and you must live the consequences. And then the last one was always tell the truth. Wow. Those are, those are extremely powerful. And, uh, you know, the wealth and, and, and so many things that we're reading about today, even in the headlines, um, you can see where there's been a lack or even a failure of applying the things that you guys have learned from your fathers uh, there and, uh, you know, going back to one, love people even when they fail you, this whole topic about um, love, because uh, we, we, we often discuss how there are, there are a number of people who have never heard their father or significant others tell them um, that they love them, you know, verbally. Uh, and, and Clarence, you write a little bit about that, uh, mm-hmm. about what you did with your kids. And then also, Gary, you're, you're well known for the, the, the book Five Love Languages that actually explains how there's, there's different ways that people give and receive love. Um, you know, Clarence, do you mind sharing about uh, what you wrote uh, in the book and, uh, and Gary following up about these things about love, the various ways we feel that? Well, well I think for my dad... Um you know, my dad, my grandfather was really a good man, but he was tough on his kids. And so my grandfather never told his kids they loved them. So consequently, my dad never told me he loved me. And actually through my mom that I got my father's blessing, so it's indirectly. And uh, she, after a basketball game we won, I was excited about it. My dad was there, but he never said anything. He just said, good game, that was about it. And so I was fortunate to have a mom who's a student of my dad who loved him enough to not let me talk about him, but also could communicate things to me he never could. And so it was really great getting that uh, that indirect blessing of my dad. That, that, was, that really changed my life, and I abused my dad. And so when Gary came into my life, because for a brief moment, for about 18 months, I had two dads, uh, Gary would communicate his love for me, you know, verbally, which is also good to hear as well. So, uh, so I think it's really important that, even though your parents may not or your dad may not say he loved you, especially a young guy listening to this, it doesn't mean he doesn't. He just may not know how to do that. 
Yeah, and I think that's one reason why, you know, the love language concept has been so helpful to people. And I say to fathers and mothers, for that matter, the question is not, do you love your teenage son or daughter? The question is, do they feel loved? Mm. Because just kind of by nature, parents love their children, but not all children feel loved. And I remember a 13-year-old boy who was in my office, and he was, had run away from home. And in my conversation, he said to me, my, my parents don't love me. They love my brother, but they don't love me. I knew his parents. I knew they loved him. But the problem is they'd never learned how to communicate love in a way that's meaningful to him, you know. So the book I wrote, Five Love Languages of Teenagers, is written to parents of teenagers, and helping them, you know, understand that you got to discover the teenager's primary love language and speak it on a regular basis if you want them to feel loved. And when a t- teenager feels loved by the parents, they're far more open to the instruction and the guidelines that we have for them. That's interesting. This this actually just came to mind, Gary, and, and even talking and, and saying thank you for the book. And both you and Clarence have, have shared your resources uh, with with a number of people. Um you know, in working in marketplace ministry, I actually had given um, this book to my boss, who was, you know, a secular Jewish man, not religious. Um, and I gave him five love languages because he had just had gotten engaged. And I said, you know, I, I want to see your relationship succeed. And that actually ended up being a springboard uh, into conversations about Christ and being mm-hmm. able to witness. And so I've subsequently done that with a number of people. And it's really interesting because they come back and they're like, wow, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know this. And uh, as one of my former pastors who gave this out to a guy who was working out at the Lifetime Fitness, the guy read it and came back and he said, you know, Pat, if I would have read this book, I'd still be married to my first wife instead of on my third mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've heard that several times through the years. If only I had read this earlier, you know, because, you know, when you're in love, you know, you you feel like you're going to be in love forever, but it has an average lifespan of two years, that euphoric stage. And then if you don't learn to express love in the other person's love language, you do lose the feelings of love. And then you have conflicts and then you have negative feelings toward them. So, uh, it's amazing how many people have said to me, you know, Dr. Chapman, that book, the original book on the five love languages saved our marriage. I mean, we were thinking divorce, and we read the book, and the lights came on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took the quiz, and we discovered each other's language, and we started speaking it, and it literally saved our marriage. So whether it's a marriage or whether it's a parent-child you know, child or parent-teenager relationship, that concept is extremely helpful in meeting one of our deepest emotional needs, and that is the need to feel loved. Gentlemen, one of the things I'm feeling more aware of nowadays is the idea that all of us, whether you're an adult or a child, need to feel like you belong somewhere. And when I see kids that are so depressed and they have so much anxiety because they don't feel like they necessarily belong any, any particular group yeah. and this whole idea of belonging. And I, and I think there's new opportunities for people to belong. I mean, even the rise in kids interested in transgender, uh, it's become a very popular hip thing to do. Yeah. And you're going to find a place where you belong. It's nuts, but it's, uh, it seems to be a, a very hot topic, not transgenderism, of course, although it is, but the idea of trying to find a place where people belong. And I love this invite back when 
your friend Clarence invited you to this gym where there would be basketball mm-hmm. and girls, and you decided <laughs> that I I can I can actually belong here, and it gave you a new opportunity that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Well, yeah, you know, it's a little bit different because when when you're doing the race thing. I wouldn't necessarily think I belong. I was thinking we'll go and we'll survive this. My job is to try and protect Russell because he said, hey, because there's an unwritten rule back then that as a black, you never went to a white setting by yourself. There's True. always least one other person with you. Yeah. So it really wasn't that I belong there. Now, as the weeks and months came by, went past, then I did have a sense I belonged there. And, felt, and I developed not just friends with Russell's friends, but other people and some of the other adults. So, so I think it has. You have to start at, at a place and build a relationship and and create a safe place, and then you can belong. I, I think one thing I really like about the book, though, is what we try and do throughout the book, sort of indirectly. If we really try and help individuals learn to like themselves, uh, the younger generation, but also older generation, we tend to struggle with the whole issue of understanding self worth versus self worship. And a lot of people have just a really poor self-image, don't really understand how much God loves you as you are and the way he made you. And so when you learn to sort of like yourself, it makes it easier to like other people, and it helps you in your direction and your decision-making. So so I think it's really important, too, of belonging to other people. But it's such peer pressure because you can actually buy an app now that gives you more friends on Facebook. And the more friends wow. you have, the more popular you get. <laughs> and so and so it's, it's a sign that people— really have poor self-images of themselves. So the book trying to indirectly helps young men. And in a lot of ways, the book is uh, gender neutral. So you could actually help young ladies that too appreciate who they are and not try and be somebody they're not. Yeah. If, if I can just interject one second, uh, Dr. Chapman, because I could hear you taking a breath like you were going to say something. Um, and I do agree with you, uh, Clarence, that it's not that you were going there to belong. It's you were going there uh, based on an invitation, but I think the goal is to one day feel like you belong somewhere. So that was just. Yeah. Oh, sure, thank you for sure. clarifying oh, that. No question. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sure. yeah, what I I, yeah, what, yeah. Absolutely. What I was going to say is this is why I really, really encourage churches to provide places where teenagers can come and have fun, and yet you know get some instruction from the scriptures. So there's a place where they can invite their friends to come and be part of that. You know, after Clarence came to Christ, uh, I, I started a college ministry in our church. And every Friday night for 10 years, we had college students meet in our in our house. And it was a Q&A time for about two hours. And then we would just break up and talk to each other for two hours. And, and even though Clarence was in high school, because of our relationship, I invited him to come. And, and he was a part of that group, you know, that, that that was that kind of thing that you're just describing. It's a place where you can go and feel safe and you can ask questions and you can, you know, build relationships. Every young person is going to find that to be a tremendous asset. And so the more churches can do that, uh, rather than just having them come to church on Sunday morning and, and meet on Sunday morning, perhaps in small groups, provide things at other times for teenagers. Yeah. And let, let me jump, let me jump on that real quick. Uh, because Gary did that, when I went to Moody Bible Institute to go to school, especially my freshman year, so many of these kids or college students were right me. And that was huge. And I was the only person of color there, but I'm, I'm in this school where I'm a no minority there. 
But then I'm getting all these letters from kids, other college kids who were my age or older, actually older, and it was so it was so refreshing and such a blessing because I belonged somewhere. So, um, and I had friends who cared about me. So we wrote back and forth back when people wrote letters. People may not realize you used to write letters, but anyway. <laughs> but, but, it, but it came from that group, and that was, that was a really special time for me. I love getting those letters. Yeah, you know, the power of community is so very huge. And, uh, you know, I serve as a life group's pastor and, and just the whole impact of isolation. I remember last year in August, the CDC had released its report and it said just in the beginning phases of COVID, 40% of Americans were struggling with mental illness and they had seen like an 11% increase in ideation towards suicide. That was very alarming. Yeah. And, you know, through the things, Gary, that you provided and, and even Clarence, that you, you also modeled experiencing that, uh, just the power of community and belonging is so huge because people go around singing cheers, you know. I want to go to a yeah. place where everybody knows my name and they're always glad I came, you know, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Let me take a little break. We're talking to Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Clarence Schuler. They've co-written a book called Choose Greatness. 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. You're going to want to get a copy of this book. Pastor David Miles and I are doing the Monday Afternoon Mix extended version. We're enjoying this. We'll be right back. Back to the Monday afternoon mix. Pastor David Miles and I are uh, talking to Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Clarence Schuler. During the break, gentlemen, uh, David said to me, well, why don't you just ask the leading question and, and I'll do the color commentary. And he goes, wait a minute, I already am providing color. <laughs> so I didn't want to exclude you guys from the comedy show that happened during the break. <laughs> That's good. I'm not going to touch that. Yeah. Can't touch that. <laughs> yeah, I can't touch that. So we w- we don't want to add too much structure with our remaining nine minutes because we we know that after a fifty two year friendship, uh, you you guys have got a couple of stories to tell or some encouragements to share. I know there's some people listening going, I wish I could have a story of what happened between Gary and Clarence, you know, and and this all happened uh, fifty two years ago. So it, it's such a wonderful story. You know, some people feel like I'd try that and it wouldn't work out and then it would be embarrassing and, eh, you know, it worked for Gary because he's Gary Chapman. But this all happened before <laughs> Gary Chapman was Gary Chapman, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it, it's it's not that you say, I'm going to walk up to this person and say, will you be my friend? You know, <laughs> no, it's that you walk up and say, you know. My name's Gary Chapman. What is your name? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, where do you go to school? Or if they're working, where do you work? And you know, just start asking questions. Listen, you start asking questions to people, they'll talk. Mm-hmm. They'll share some things, you know, and, and then you see them again, and uh, you know, maybe have another conversation. And you're not you're not even necessarily thinking it's going to be a lifetime friendship, but you're you're treating people friendly. You know, the word courteous. The Greek word comes it comes from two Greek words. One means the mind, and the other means friend or friendly. So it's to be friendly-minded. 
is to treat people as though they were your friend. And if you treat them as though they were a friend, you might become a friend. You know? mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just felt like our our time, you know, like I think Gary both said this, that we didn't start out saying it's gonna, we're going to have a friendship that lasts this long. It, it really just began to happen. I began to watch him. I had to learn to trust him. And then I watched my parents begin to trust him. But we also had issues, though, because there are sometimes we have misunderstandings, and we would have to spend sometimes hours talking about misunderstandings to hear each other's side Mm -hmm. and to learn from each other. And so for me, it was Gary's client, you know, guiding me spiritually, discipling me. Then my dad died, so I became my dad. So so he had this kind of father's spiritual son stuff, which you still have. And then we kind of became, you know, friends, and so it's just, uh, you know, it's just really been a great relationship. And I think we're probably closer now than we've ever been, especially because some of the books we're writing, different things we're talking about. So it just developed over the years, and it just it just seems to get better and better. Yeah, and the thing is, friendship of two individuals, it spreads to the families. Mm-hmm. You know, my my children consider Clarence a brother. You know, they sometimes introduce him as their brother. Sweet. And you know, and his 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 children call me grandpa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and it's just when the family can see that sort of thing, you know, it just fosters uh, relationships between people of different cultures and different races. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, th- this particular book, we're we're just hoping that a lot of fathers will pick up on this book and. And you know, share it with their with their uh, with son. Read through it with their son. We deal with the heavy issues, as you know, as you mm-hmm. said earlier. We deal with sexuality. We deal with drugs and alcohol. We deal with smoking cigarettes and marijuana, and, <laughs> and we give our stories. You know, and when we were teenagers and how all this came along, and then we have a chapter, you know, on developing relationships and friendships with with people of different races and cultures. So it's just, it's just, we just see it as a tool that fathers who really want to talk with their sons about in-depth stuff, but somehow never quite get around to it. It, it this makes it easier for them. Well, I think one of the things that is is uh, really important that you guys have talked about, even in just getting to know people, but even in having to work through your issues, was the conclusion of your book. You know, choose life by asking good questions. You know, yeah. uh, and just the importance of that. And I can't remember offhand uh, who the person who said this, but they had noted that, you know, listening to one to another person deeply is probably one of the most loving and honoring yeah. things that you could do for a person. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe that. I just believe when you show enough attention to ask questions of a person, it communicates to them, I care about you, you know. Rather than just saying, hi, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? You know, which is what we do is walk down the hallway at work or wherever. Uh, but taking the opportunity to ask questions of people opens the door to the possibility that there can be a deeper relationship. We just have a few more minutes left. Clarence, I'd love for you to share any observations you had about Gary because you obviously watched carefully what he did, and there must have been times where you felt inspired by, well, boy, if Gary Chapman can write a book, maybe I can. <laughs> well, uh, you know, actually, Gary, is long story, but I'll keep it short. He introduced me to writing. Uh, years, I, I can't you know how many years ago, he had me write a, a, a letter 
to women on church staff if they should work or not work. So I gave the pros and cons of both, not tell them that they should or shouldn't, but based on their circumstances. And so years later after that, I asked them, I said, well, did anybody respond today? So, yeah, we got a good response. And then uh, another member of our church had me write a brief story about our relationship. And he was doing, he had a magazine, had a subscription about 250000 and we got a good response. And then a, another author, similar to Gary, wrote about our story, too, that story, and wrote it. And then it seems like uh, God is going to show me that I could write some. And so he kind of, you know, my writing just kind of took off like that eventually. So, uh, so yeah, I would say he was inspired. I wasn't trying to be like him. He just sort of just fell in place, I guess. Yeah, one of the— yeah, something out of the book that I love was the, the more skills you learn, the more confident you become about yourself in life. And that's mm-hmm. just a, such a powerful message. So as you develop yeah. skills and get encouraged to learn new skills, like Gary helped you and encouraged you with your writing, and now you're you know an author today. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's all awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, when he would say, hey, Clarence, what you wrote here is really good. I mean, with him being a New York Times bestselling author, he says that, and he's always been honest with me. That, that Yeah, that was very encouraging and a lot to me. You know, guys, uh, Clarence, you were talking earlier about writing notes and even just this whole thing of sharing and knowing and our overwhelmedness. You know, I think it'd probably be fairly powerful even as a takeaway from this because if people were to just stop for, you know, 15 seconds and think of the people that God has brought into your life to impact Mm -hmm. you and then maybe just sit down and, you know, do snail mail, write a handwritten note Mm -hmm. to that person saying thank you. And for the person who doesn't have someone uh, to pick up, as as Clarence did in the book, and say, I made a decision that I'm going to now tell my children that I love you and say, if you didn't have it, you can make the decision where you're at today to become that person. Yeah, I like that. And I think if you write a handwritten letter or a handwritten note or a card, that person will probably keep that for, for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. If, if, it's, if it's online they'll read it and they might respond and then they just let it go. There's something about a handwritten letter, you know, that there's something different there. Yeah. It's so powerful. Gentlemen, it's been so fun to sort of get a peek behind the curtain of your friendship and your 52 year relationship and the book you wrote together called choose greatness, 11 wise decisions that brave young men make Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Clarence Schuler have been our guests. David, what a fun hour and boy, has it gone fast. It certainly has. Yeah. It's been great. Gentlemen, thank you so yeah. much. I feel like the four of us sat in a row at a game and watched a game and talked the whole hour. It's been great. And by the way, my team lost <laughs> as they always do. I'm a Minnesota fan. Well, it was good being with you guys. Today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks gentlemen. All right, David, it's been a great hour. We'll take a little break, and we'll continue afternoons in just a minute.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back. We're so glad to have a chance to once again speak to Beverly Canera. She's Bible study fellowship teacher for over 35 years. She moved on from that, but continues to love to teach God's word, to mentor, and to just be involved in people's lives. And she does that so well. We're going to talk today about the many women that supported Christ's work. We're going to learn that out of Luke chapter 8. Bev, welcome. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here, Bill. So three verses in chapter 8 to get us started. This is kind of, uh, this is going to be great. Well, you know, when you picture Jesus walking about in the the nation of Israel, going from Galilee into Jerusalem and teaching all around to the Jordan, you don't, I usually picture him with 12 men like little ducklings following behind him. And I came across this Luke passage and lo and behold, this was a larger group than that, that were following him. And women are mentioned specifically in Luke 8. So why don't I start there by just reading that? After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits, diseases. Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and the the manager of Herod's household. And Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Mm. Wow, you know, I've read that so many times, and I, my eyes just kind of glanced over that, and I didn't really realize the significance of that. So Jesus had a little entourage going. He did. Yeah. He did. And it wasn't just all men. Right. And, and when we put this in the cultural context, it's it's rather astounding. You know, I have a young friend who had a young friend who asked her, where are the women in the Bible? They're <laughs> there. They are certainly there. Look at the Old Testament. We have Eve, we have Sarah, Deborah, Esther, Ruth, really a a rich array of of women. But what about in the New Testament? It seems like it's just the disciples or Paul speaking. But you know what? In the background of all of this is some really mighty, committed um, women who are living sacrificially for Christ. Uh, So we want to look at these three women that are named here. And anytime you're named in the Bible, Bill, that's significant, isn't it? Mm -hmm, It is. So this really stands out to me. But first, we need to talk about what was life like for women of the day? Basically, they were to be in their home and not to wander far except for essentials. And a Jewish man and certainly a rabbi were not to speak to a woman on the street. They were, (laughs) the rabbis were told to close your eyes when you see a woman on the street. So the more bruised up and bleeding you were as a rabbi showed that you were being holy by not looking at women. And the bruised and bloody, or is that from falling? From running into things, because their <laughs> eyes are closed. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> it's, it right. was extreme, for sure. Women were not taught the Torah or generally educated. They thought it would be dangerous to do that for women. Mm-hmm. Women had little that really belonged to them. It would have been the exception to have anything of their own money or property. And basically, a woman was property of her father until she married, and then she became property of her husband and his family. So that was how women were treated culturally in that day, and yet Christ came and he really uh, bucked the system. He, did. He, he He 
you know, had the 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 feeling that you know in Galatians three twenty eight it really expresses what Christ demonstrated. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither is there slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians three twenty eight. Um, remember how many times Jesus had encounters with women in the New Testament. Um, certainly, you can't forget about the woman at the well or the woman that he cured who had the issue of blood for 12 years. She touched Jesus so she could be healed. And because of her condition, a flow of blood, she would have been considered unclean. And yet she touched Christ, and now he would be unclean. But Jesus allowed her to be healed and even commends her for her faith. Then we can't forget about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This family, Christ was very close to. We see that in John 11 when Lazarus dies, and then he brings him back to life. But th- these really was a wonderful friendship there. They were having dinner together one night, and Jesus was there, and Mary and Martha, Lazarus. And Martha served the food, of course. Lazarus was relaxing. You know how they would lounge on their elbows on, on pillows. And then Mary, though, she comes in and washes Jesus' feet with this pure nard, which, wouldn't, which was such an extravagance, like a year's uh, wage, that she poured on Jesus' feet and then wiped all that nard with her hair. And then, of course, Judas speaks up, hey, that money should have been given to the poor. We should have sold it and given to the poor, even though he was stealing from it. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She has anointed me for the day of my burial. So Jesus, you ever wonder, did Jesus know he was actually going to be crucified? Oh, yes. He knew his death was imminent, and he knew why that death was so important. And that was our punishment that he took to forgive us of our sins. But, you know, there's a lot of examples I could give you today. But these women we're going to talk about today were really bold uh, faithful women of God who followed Jesus, I think, close to three years. Now, let's talk about these women a little bit closer. Um, our key text, of course, was found in Luke 8, and it mentions three names. So let's look at Mary Magdalene first. Um, we see here that she was delivered from seven demons. Now, some have called her a prostitute, but Scripture never says she's a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see other examples of demon possession in the Scriptures, and what was happening was that she, they, she wouldn't have been able to live her life freely. She would be tortured. She would be controlled involuntarily by this evil um, and would bring harm to herself or maybe even to others. What we would call a normal life, Mary did not have. Um, Mary Magdalene, it, Magdalene is the city she came from, Mary Magdala, uh, uh, Magdala was the city. So she was called Mary Magdalene just because of the numerous Marys mm-hmm. that were about at that time. So maybe this is relatable to many of us, uh, too, who are in Christ. Uh, before we were in Christ, I should say, we were controlled by sin. We were controlled by lies. The enemy had a hold on us and we couldn't break free. The power of sin weakens us and brings us so much suffering in our life. Mary Magdalene was a woman who had been delivered. 
Jesus has power over sin and Satan, and Jesus alone can set us free from the bondage of sin and Satan. We don't have the power to free ourselves. Um, Jesus said in John eight thirty one and 32, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Revelations 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Mary Magdalene's life was utterly changed. Her response was to follow Christ and provide for the ministry of Christ. Mary's heart was obviously filled with such gratitude for her Lord. Um, She was really what we would call today all in. She was all in here. She wanted to be part of the ministry. She wanted to assist in the life-giving, the powerful freedom that Christ brought. And she did that by a tangible giving of resources as well as an allegiance to the Savior. So it doesn't qualify which woman gave uh, out of their own resources. It, it infers here really that they had all been delivered in some way and also were participating in giving to the ministry. You know, Bev, I find that very interesting because we you, know, you started by talking about the, the role of women were basically to stay home. So I'm trying to think about how employable these women would be. Where did they get money to be supporting uh, the ministry of Jesus? Where Where is their money coming from? Two of them have got some pretty uh, serious history of evil spirits and sicknesses. Exactly. So I'm just wondering how employable they are and how much money they had to offer. Yeah, it's well, the intrig- one, Susanna, was it Susanna? Yeah. Yeah. She, she, no, Joanna, she actually was, uh, her husband worked in the royal palace, so they would have had means. And um, how, what, how they contributed, or if they contribute a lot or a little, yeah, right. we don't know. But, um, you know, this is what the scripture says. So there was access, which was, again, like, like I said, it's unusual yeah. that the women were able to give like this. You know, maybe they gave more than just in means. They were serving them as well sure. in many ways. That obviously uh, this crew of traveling disciples, not just 12, but many women, and I'm sure there were many that were not disciples too following Christ. So there was quite the crowd, yeah. and they could have helped in so many ways, uh, helping in that way as well. So so Mary Magdalene is a great um, role model, really, for us. We have to ask ourselves, what has been our response to the freedom from sin and power of Satan that Christ has given you through faith in him? You know, do we do we leave all to follow him? Are we really sold out for Christ? Are we willing to give of our means, whether much or little, uh, to support the work and to carry on the ministry that Christ has started? So Mary Magdalene is a very important character. She's always listed first uh, when you when they start listing the women, um, ex- with the exception of at the cross. At the cross, she's mentioned, but she's number three that's mentioned. First is Ma- Mary, Christ's mother, and then um, Mary's sister, Mary, <laughs> and then it says Mary Magdalene. So we have three Marys at the cross. Now, possibly a lot of these other women were there as well, but just not mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, that some feel that Luke, you know, he has like, 22 different mentions of women, most feel that he probably got some of his information to write the gospel from these women because they were there long-term following him from Mm -hmm. Galilee all the way to the cross, to the tomb, and to the resurrection. That's exciting. Isn't it? Uh, It's very exciting. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, uh, she was an amazing character. Um, I feel that 
these women at the cross didn't have the fear that the disciples did because they, you know, they were almost ignored by the authorities. They, they didn't pose a threat like the disciples would have. So that's why perhaps they're there. Apostle John was there at the cross. And then in the gospel in John chapter 19, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, and then Mary Magdalene. Um, Luke 23 says that the women who had come from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how Christ's body was laid. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So these same faithful women were at the cross. They followed Jesus's body to his burial, saw him buried. Um, And then after the Sabbath, the same small group of women go to the tomb to anoint Christ's body in loving respect. And they wondered, how in the world are we going to open the tomb? Mm Because they saw it being closed up. Yeah. Wow, Bev. Let's take a little break here. We're talking about the uh, women of the Bible, the women that have supported Jesus in his ministry. Beverly Canaris is my guest. After a short break, we'll be right back with lots more. to be back with Beverly Canaris. We're talking about uh, women who supported the work of Jesus. We're looking at Luke chapter 8, the first three verses, and learning a whole bunch about uh, these three women. Bev, let's pick up. There were three Marys at, at the cross. At the yes. cross, yes. Let's continue there. Yeah. So they these women, and I'm there may have been more than just those three mentioned, but those are the three that are mentioned. Uh, watch Jesus being taken down from the cross and being put in the tomb. Um, so they, they, they followed Christ to the very end. And then it became the Sabbath and they had to rest, but they intended to go back. And out of their love and respect for him, they were going to put on more of this anointing on his body. Um, but when the day came that they could finally go back to the tomb, they realized that rock had been rolled in front of that, and they wondered how they would enter. Well, when this group of women, probably led by Mary Magdalene, because she's so prominent as the scriptures describe this scene, she um, they, they get there, and the stone has been rolled back, and there's two angels seated in the tomb. And so the women are, they leave, they're, they're in shock and somewhat saddened still, but Mary Magdalene sticks around the tomb, and she's weeping. She's fearing that someone has taken the Lord's body. So she sees a figure in the distance, and she thinks, oh, it must be the gardener. And she says to him, can you tell me where they have taken my Lord, and I will go and get him? And I'm thinking to myself, Mary, can you carry a dead man? <laughs> but that was her love, the depth of her love. She wanted to, uh, she, his grave in her mind, have been desecrated. Even though with the angelic scene, she still couldn't put the pieces together. But she sees this figure. She thinks it's the gardener, and she asks for that kind of help. Her words were, they have taken my Lord away. 
Mary was not looking for the resurrection. This was not made up. This wasn't a, a woman's imagination. She was looking for a body. But then a voice speaks her name, Mary. It was the risen Lord. Mary responds with the term Rabboni, which means like my rabbi, my teacher. Christ instructs her at this moment, don't cling to him. She now will relate to him in a different way. Mary is the first one to see the resurrected Christ. And Christ, not only does he see her, he shows himself to her, but he gives her a mission. Now, this is Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons taken from her. And she is the one that Christ gives the the good news to for the first time. First evangelist. First evangelist. Mm -hmm. Same thing with uh, John 4, where we have the woman at the well. Christ reveals himself as the Messiah to her early on in the ministry. I mean, this is really, this should catch our attention. It really should. So Mary was given this privilege to be the first to go and to tell the disciples that Christ has risen. But when she went to the disciples, they didn't receive it. Um, Mary had that honor of being the first to announce the resurrection. But why did the disciples not believe her? Did they think, oh, another demon has entered Mary? Or did they think, oh, this was a delusional, grief-stricken woman? Mm. Mary was brave, first of all, to walk in that room and give this amazing news. Think how amazing this news is. Come on. Anybody else? Any news of anybody else resurrecting from the dead? Hmm. And really, she entered a room that was filled with critics and unbelief. You know what? We can relate to this. We, too, have been given the great privilege of telling others of the death and resurrection of Christ. Will we obey and go tell others? The word is the same to us. We are to go. Are we willing to share the gospel among critics and even skeptics? Are we willing to tell and leave the results up to the Lord and his Holy Spirit? You know, Mary, I don't see her struggling against it or talking back to those men. She she did her what God asked her to do, what the Lord asked her to do, and left the results up to them. But it did cause Peter and John to run to the tomb and to discover it empty as well. And then to see the grave clothes laying in such a way that outlined a body, but how who would steal the body and take off the wrappings, which would be stuck together? It'd be like cutting off a cast. Mm-hmm. And... The face cloth was in a different place. But anyway, the evidence, you know, if you were a a detective, you'd go in that tomb and you'd say, hmm, this is a mystery. This would have to be figured out. So Peter and John have seen that, but they're still skeptical. Now, there's another woman mentioned here in John, I mean, in Luke 8, chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3, Joanna of Chusa. Her story can also be found here. Um, In the second verse, it says that she had been healed of evil spirits and diseases. We don't know which women had the diseases or if they all had diseases and they all had evil spirits. We're not clear on that, but they kind of group them together, these three names that we're going to talk about as having been healed from this evil possession and then from sicknesses. Joanna was part of the group that traveled with Jesus and the disciples. I really feel these three women were probably the leaders in the group because they're named specifically. And uh, Mary Magdalene being the foremost. Joanna was a woman of means and influence. She and her husband managed, it would be Herod's household, which would have been a really a large estate. And she would have had a 
lot of responsibilities there and wealth and influence from her husband. You know, there's a myth that you hear about women in the Bible really take a back seat, but they, they, and they don't experience Jesus in the same way that men did. But Joanna witnessed it all. So did Mary Magdalene. And so is Susanna. Here we have a woman, Joanna, who left her privileged life, really. She would have had quite the life there in, the, in taking care of that estate. She left that to follow Christ. She experienced healing through Christ. She received uh, deliverance through Christ. She probably was one of the ones that was present at the cross, but unmentioned, even saw the burial and maybe the empty tomb as well. Um, we also have something here with Joanna that's interesting. Jesus's countercultural view of women in the Bible ought to really encourage us. Uh, not only is there room for women in the Bible, there's compassion. Jesus shows compassion for women. He is very intentional about reaching them. He has purpose for women. We don't. Women do not have less access to God than men. The Bible models women who took up their cross to follow Jesus. This was Joanna. She left behind her wealth, safety, comfort, influence, reputation to follow Jesus. Just like Abraham, just like Peter, Andrew, Paul, they all left. There have been generations of godly men who left everything to follow Jesus, and there are also generations of godly women who have done the same. Not only did Joanna follow Jesus in this way and take up her cross to follow him, she gave out of her own means. Um, You know, when you've had a total heart change, everything has changed about you. The way you spend your money, where you put your resources, that changes too, or at least should. And it's not, you know, um, just, just believe, that's all you need to do. No, her entire life changed. Her priorities changed. What she valued changed. She gave sacrificially, I'm sure, to the ministry of Christ. So she was a different person. Um, she was living out her faith and becoming more like Jesus uh, in the way that she gave out of her own means. And then next, the, the third woman mentioned is Susanna, uh, Continuing here in Luke 8, it was Mary, Joanna, and then Susanna, and you could skip over this so easily, and many others, many other women specifically. Mm -hmm. So we not only have three women following, we have a group that's following, and these three must have been more in the leadership of that group. There's many. This is really a, a word for us, and that is that Women, we need community just like men do, but you you have to have that community. They probably supported each other, um, had fellowship with each other. We need to be in a community of women who follow Christ, and we, we should not try to live out our life alone. We need this group. Small groups are wonderful. Um, Bible studies in your church. Women, we need each other, as do men. But I think that there's a unique need. Women tend to really want to process things verbally. And without other women, it can be very challenging and and downright depressing. So I know I certainly um, love having my community of godly sisters around me. And we help each other and support each other. So we really see that there was a group there that were doing just that. Now, we know that nothing written in the Bible is a coincidence. If your name is mentioned, boy, that's important. So it's clear. These three women we've talked about, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, 
were truly influential women. They would have sat under Jesus's teaching. This was not something culturally accepted that women were following rabbis around. These were educated, strong, influential women of God. Think how thirsty these women must have been Mm -hmm. when they had been denied this by the culture. These women really give us an example and the people of the day an example of how valued the women were in the kingdom of God. So let's ask ourselves something. Are you willing to leave everything and follow Jesus like Joanna? Are you hungry for God like Susanna? You know, we have to ask ourselves, do I really see fruit of a changed life? These women followed. These women left whatever life they had where they used to live and followed Christ. Um, They changed from a self-centered life into a Christ-centered life. And that's when we know we truly have the Spirit of God in us. Mm-hmm. When we see that that shift of who's in charge, me, I want what I want, or Christ. What does Christ want for me? He's my Lord. He's my King. And these women, I think, demonstrate that beautifully. Fantastic. Bev, what a great way to end the day. Really lovely to uh, talk about this out of Luke chapter 8. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, Thanks, yeah. Bill. That wraps up our show for the day. I want to thank Patrick Albanese and uh, Dr. Gary Chapman and Dr. Clarence Schuler and Beverly Canaris for being such awesome guests. I hope you had a wonderful day. Thanks for spending time with me. I will look forward to our time tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.